0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
2: Roberts. We deal with a topic that I think will perhaps go to the heart of so many parents listening here tonight. Let me give you some background. had a late night telephone call from a friend here not all that long ago. The conversation began like this. Hi, Craig. Have you seen my son? Now, his boy occasionally worked for me doing yard projects, repair work around the house. You know, anytime you need a little bit of strong back and brawn to uh, help the old man here out. Good kid and uh, was intelligent and understood, followed directions. so built fences and did all kinds of things. So his dad calls me looking for his son. He said, no, I haven't talked to him in a while. Why? He says, well, he disappeared two days ago and is not answering his cell phone. As the conversation progressed, I discovered from my friend that this is about the fourth such time in as many months that his son had taken off all of the previous occasions on marijuana and drug-saturated rave weekends. Needless to say, I was shocked. A young man raised in a good, solid home, both parents seemingly did all the right things, sent him to all the right schools, took him to church regularly, taught him how to behave, And yet, by the time he reached his late teens, something of a switch got turned, and the behavior was all of a sudden not of the young man that any of us knew. That prompted that parent that night, as perhaps you have even queried yourself, to ask the question, what did I or what did we do wrong? What do we do now? What do I do now? The issue of prodigal children is something that many parents have been troubled by and may, even as we speak, face what to do. Joining me now, best-selling author, sought-after speaker, who in fact leads one of the largest conference ministries in the United States, Phil Waldrop is with us. The book is called Reaching Your Prodigal. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? And Pastor Waldrop, great to have you on the show.
1: Well, thank you. It's my joy to be with you and to talk about something that's very, very dear to my heart.
2: Why so dear to your heart? Is this something that um, you have some close familiarity with?
1: Well, you know, I get asked that a lot. And fortunately, uh, my wife and I have two wonderful daughters who are adults and they're serving the Lord. So I often tell people I have not walked this journey myself. So people sometimes think that disqualifies me. But before I tell them differently, I say, but let me tell you why it's dear to my heart, because for the last 40 years of ministry, there is rarely a week that passes, matter of fact, rarely a day passes, that someone does not come to me and tell me about their son or their daughter or their grandchild who has walked away from the faith, and they always get around to those two questions invariably. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? And so I started on a journey over 15 years ago interviewing prodigals, talking to prodigals, searching the scriptures to try to find the answers to those two questions. And it's taken me that long to really come to grips with what I think is biblical and practical answers to those questions.
2: Let's get to the heart first of some of the emotions that parents go through. And I know it runs the gambit. There is a sense of guilt. There is a sense of confusion. Um, we were too kind. We weren't kind enough. Um, must have been something that went wrong. Certainly, there's a day and an age where there's a perception that, well, because there was a divorce in the family that added certain stresses, on and on the list goes. And yet, at at the end of the day the parent typically carries an enormous amount of guilt like my friend who called that night you know absolutely heartbroken worried for his son his wife was a bundle of nerves and it wasn't soon before the conversation turned into well we must have done something wrong somewhere because none of the rest of our kids behave like this is that sense of guilt very common
1: it's sense of guilt is almost always present especially when the parents are good Christian people who are good moral people. Uh, They almost always ask those questions, and they feel guilty. So here's what they do. They go back to the moment that child is born, and they relive every moment of that child's life. Did we send them to the right school? Did we go to the right church? Did we let them play on the right sports team? Uh, And so we we go through their lives trying to find that aha moment when we can say, that's it. That's the reason why they became a prodigal. And when we cannot isolate a situation or a person to blame, we still have all of this guilt and we throw our hands up and we say, I don't know what we did wrong. And so the end result is the guilt begins to turn to shame and embarrassment. And sometimes, especially in the Christian world, we tend to sit in church, we don't want to sing in a choir, we don't want to serve on a committee, we just kind of sit there through the services, and most of the time we're thinking, you know, I'm the only one with this problem. And one of the things that I do often when I speak to a group is I ask them for a moment to set aside the shame, and as a source of encouragement, if you have a prodigal in your family, would you stand? And when people start standing, there is this awe moment. Because we're convinced we're the only one that has that child. But the guilt is common, and I did the research, and I think I found the answer to that question, what do we do wrong?
2: All right, let's let's work through some details here. The the guilt sometimes, though, isn't that also accidentally um, or unintentionally stoked by oftentimes well-meaning people that either try to come alongside the uh, the parent dealing with the prodigal and offer some sort of an answer, uh, it, it, perhaps out of the desire to set that that disturbed heart at peace, or maybe even trying to sort of uh, minimize the situation. Oh, don't worry, he must be at a friend's house she must be hanging out you know somewhere and, and try to kind of minimize the things and then as a result heap more guilt and shame on the parent
1: well we do because a lot of times we try to help but we make matters worse because we try to help fix the guilt so we try to say as you just said to people oh well it could just be it's not as bad as you think or it's worse than you think or you know it was that one kid you let them hang out with We've got to try to find someone or something to blame. And sometimes those of us who are friends, um, and especially if we don't have children, our children are small, or if we're blessed with kids that have made good decisions, we tend to inflict more guilt on those people, thinking we're helping, but most of the time we're not. Or we talk to other people about them, and we sometimes tried to talk about decisions they made that maybe we thought were poor decisions. You know, I've heard people say, well, they're prodigals because they send their kids to a private school. Or if they send them to the public school, well, that's the reason why they're prodigal. So the parents are in a no-win situation sometimes, and we feel guilty and guilty. And the very first thing I discovered was, if you're going to be able to reach your prodigal, you've got to deal with the guilt. And you've got to get over the guilt. And if you don't, you're always going to be in a position of weakness and not strength.
2: And, of course, the irony is, and I know that no parent wants to hear this, but the irony is at the end of the day, we're all born with a Deodamic sin nature. Right. And many of us, I think, even as parents, if we think back to our own childhood and growing up years, had our moments of wandering and questioning and challenging authority and acting out and all of that. Some of us got it out of our systems earlier. Some of us didn't get it out of our systems until our teen years. Some waited until college. We think about it. In many cases, our stories are not all that dissimilar. And I guess it's hard for parents to really grasp the idea, the reality that, you know, we're, we're, we're all in this sin nature prone to this sort of behavior, and so at the end of the day, it has less to do sometimes with parenting skills, whether or not you took time to listen to your child, and all of these other uh, angles that oftentimes, from a guilt standpoint, we try to soften the blow, as opposed to just having to deal, I guess, with just some of the harsh realities of man's sin nature.
1: Right. Here's one of the things that I say to parents. When they ask me that question, what did I do wrong? And I say, you know, I spent years doing the research. And I taught with numerous prodigals, I taught with so many prodigals, they were, some of them were, were good moral kids who weren't interested in spiritual things, to every kind of addiction you can imagine, to even one prodigal uh, who I knew well was incarcerated for a very, very serious felony. He'll spend the rest of his life in prison. And one of the things I look at parents and I tell them, you know what the research shows that in almost every case, not all, but in almost every case where there is a prodigal, the parents did absolutely nothing wrong. I've had prodigals sit and tell me, no, my great parents, I made the choice to walk away. I made the choice to do what I did. And sometimes they try, to you know, there are those who are immature and try to blame their parents, but there's really nothing they can point to their parents did wrong. And so when people look at me and they often will say, But I believe if you do it right, they always turn out right. Then I look at them and I say, well, let me ask you this question. What did God do wrong with Adam and Eve? Hmm. Or what did Jesus do wrong with Judas? What did God do wrong with the children of Israel? You know, when you go back to Adam and Eve, God did everything right. In every sense of the word, he was a perfect father to them. And they made the choice to walk away, and they were in a perfect environment. And so there's nothing you can blame Adam and Eve for. You can say, well, the devil tempted them. But in reality, they were in a perfect environment with a perfect Heavenly Father who was doing everything perfectly, and they chose to walk away. And Judas was with perfect love for over three years, and he still betrayed Our Lord. So the fact is, until the Holy Spirit tells us what we did wrong, we must assume we did nothing wrong. And we walk in victory instead of defeat. We don't walk in shame. Because if we do walk in shame, here's what happens not only are we defeated and we don't have any joy in our life. But if our prodigal, especially if they have addictive behavior, they can begin to manipulate us as parents. You know, well, mom, I'm in jail again. If you'll just get me out this one time, uh, you know, I'll never get in jail again. Or if you'll just pay my gambling debt, I'll never gamble again. And because we feel guilty, we give in, which is the total opposite of what we need to do with our prodigals. And so I tell parents, Uh, Until the Lord makes it clear what you've done wrong or until you come to realize the mistake you made. And sometimes as parents, we do make mistakes. I know, for example, uh, a man who had an affair and uh, his wife forgave him, the Lord forgave him, but he never discussed it with his son and that became a source of contention in the heart of his son, that's a case where the father said, wait a minute, I never discussed that with my son. So I always felt in those cases, you sit down and you admit you're wrong, you admit your sin to your, your prodigal, and you ask for their forgiveness. They may not grant it, but you remove the barrier. So there are times when we know we did things wrong and we ought to ask for forgiveness. But until we are aware of it, we must live as though we did nothing wrong And have victory in our hearts so that we cannot be manipulated by other people, by our own prodigals, or by the devil, if you wish. We've got to walk in victory and get over the guilt. That is the most important thing a parent can do. Then you're in a position of being proactive, not reactive, when you have a prodigal.
2: And, of course, so often, not only, as you point out, Pastor Waldrop, that parents struggle with the pain and the loss but they then too struggle with the response well what do we do do we over love them do we become overprotective? do we engage in tough love how about blind love we'll talk about that as we continue our conversation phil waldrop with us tonight look at reaching your prodigal what did i do wrong what do i do now
0: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts
2: Back to our conversation with best-selling author, Pastor Phil Waldrop. We're talking about the prodigal child. Perhaps you have one. Perhaps you're in that unenviable position where you you're dealing with the pain and loss but now the big question is okay how do i move out of this paralysis how do we respond and sometimes even within families there are debates about well do we show absolute unconditional love so if the kid gets arrested do we bail him out of jail uh do we show tough love and let him deal with the consequences of their actions where do we strike a balance and and toward that point Phil, and I know within the book, and maybe you can share them during our conversation tonight, the six principles for getting the prodigal back. But in terms of the response, how parents react to this can either make a bad situation better or make it worse, can
1: it? Well, we can because one of the things that we do, and of course, again, going back to what we were speaking of earlier, if we feel guilty, we're more prone, I think, to make Poor decisions and the wrong decisions take the matter of unconditional love many of us think unconditional love means that anytime that you've got a problem it's my job to fix your problem or to rescue from the pain of your problem and that's not unconditional love unconditional love says my love for you is not based on performance Um, If you're good, I don't love you more. If you're bad, I don't love you less. But love also says, I'm going to do what is best for you. And sometimes removing the pain of the decisions you're making is not what is best for you. Go back to the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. Now, we call it the story of the prodigal son. I like to call it the story of a wonderful father because the real focus is the father, not the son when the son came to his father and said father give me my part of the inheritance i want to leave and he didn't just leave the farm he left the country because jesus said he went into a far country which meant he renounced everything to do with his family he renounced his faith he renounced his uh... you know his time with the family any role he had there and the father allowed him to go now unconditional love would probably have in the minds of some people would have said oh wait son what did we do wrong how can we make you happy you don't have to do any more chores around here but no the father said son if that's the choice you want to make I'm going to allow you to make it because the father knew that when he went away if he had stayed he would have still been a prodigal in his heart and even when he went away and he he ultimately was in a pig pen which was the worst thing that a Jewish boy could do to his family and to his father even then The father did not send a soup and sandwich. He didn't send a servant with money. It would have gotten him out of the pig pen, would have saved the father some embarrassment, but it would never have gotten him home. And sometimes we must understand unconditional love means, I love you for who you are, not for what you do, good or bad, but also my unconditional love for you is I'm always going to do what is best for you and what help you to come to grips you know when i remember when i was in the first grade at school i remember telling my mother mother if you love me you won't make me go to school but my mother made me go to school because she loved me now where i stood that wasn't the best thing for me to do but she knew it was and she made me go because love looks beyond what i want to what i need that's unconditional love
2: I want to have you walk us through some of these six principles that you discuss at length throughout the book Reaching Your Prodigal the six principles for getting the prodigal back we, we dealt with the the issue of guilt I think a little bit earlier on but one of the other points that you make is this matter of removing barriers when you say that what do you mean?
1: Well, I mean barriers is because sometimes as parents we do things that cause a barrier to be erected between us and our child but even though a greater level between our child and the Lord. And it's not always sin that is there. Um, For example, sometimes we as parents do what is right, sometimes we do what is best, but we fail to realize how our child saw what happened. For example, recently a man when I were talking and he was telling me that there was just something between... Uh, he and his son, and he did not know what it was. And so we began to talk, and I said, well, if you sent us there, why don't you ask the Lord for the right time to ask your son what it was? And he did. And his son told him, he said, Dad, when I was young, you had a job, and your job took you out of town quite a bit. You were away a lot. And you never came to my sports events. It wasn't because you didn't want to. You were out of town. And he said, I just still can't get over that I was one of the few kids who didn't have a dad in the stands at that time. And the father said he wanted to go into a defense and say, oh, son, you don't understand. It was a hard time. The economy was bad. It was the only job I could get. But then he realized that's not what his son needed. His son didn't need an explanation. But he said to his son, son, you know what? When I look back, you were exactly right. And probably if I had it to do over, I would have taken a different job. And when he acknowledged that to his son, it changed the relationship. What he did was he removed a barrier. He removed what was between them. Sometimes you get that by asking your your uh, prodigal. And when you do, you ask for their forgiveness. Now, again, they may not grant you forgiveness, but that's what I mean when I talk about a barrier. It is something that is between them and the Lord or between you and your prodigal that has happened you may or may not be aware of it but doing everything you can to remove it so they no longer have an excuse
2: let's take a time out come back to more of our conversation here if you've just tuned in our visit today with phil Waldrup. phil is a best-selling author he's also a very sought-after public speaker he leads one of the largest conference ministries in the united states his book is called reaching your prodigal what did i do wrong what Do I Do Now? The foreword written by our friend, Dr. David Jeremiah. The book, by the way, newly published by Worthy Publications. You can get it through The Usual Suspects, Amazon.com. Also through Phil's website at philwaldrep.org. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to our look at six principles for getting your prodigal back as our conversation with bestselling author Phil Waldrup continues here on KFAX. All right, we are back with best-selling author Phil Waldrop, a look at Reaching Your Prodigal. What did I do wrong and what do I do now? The book goes into depth. We're just kind of giving you the highlights today of these six principles for getting your prodigal back. And when last we met, we were talking about removing barriers. The other big challenge is, and this is where it gets, I think, a little bit convoluted, um, uh, Phil, and you, you sort of addressed this slightly earlier in that we want to extend to the prodigal unconditional love. Uh, but sometimes we get confused as to what exactly that means.
1: Well, it's true. It, you know, Again, it's not based on our performance, but one of the things that I think it's important when you talk about unconditional love for parents to do is I believe unconditional love is a decision we make in our life and in our heart, but we make it long before there's a crisis. You know, when I wrote Reaching Your Prodigal, I told a story of two men who faced very similar situation. Both men had teenage daughters who became uh, pregnant. They, they were expecting ch- children and they weren't married. And both of these men lived in the Southeastern United States were in small rural communities where it's still very frowned on even culturally when that happens. And so one father reacted in anger. He got mad by his own testimony. He pounded the coffee table and he said, how could you? You know, I'm a leader in the church, I'm a leader in the community, you've ruined my name. And in his anger, he told his daughter to get her things and get out. Mm. And yet the man's pastor, six months later, tells the congregation that he and his wife have learned that week that their daughter is a teenage girl and she's gonna be an unwed mother. And he talked about how they were embarrassed, they cried a lot, but he looked at this congregation where this other man was sitting and he said, "But you know, my wife and I are grateful that our, our daughter has, has made the decision to give birth to the child, to give life to the child. We're going to support her, we'll have her rear the ch- uh, child. If necessary, I'll step down as your pastor. But while we are ashamed of what our daughter has done, we're not ashamed she is our daughter. And here are two men, similar situations, two totally different reactions. And both of them thinking they're doing the right thing. But the difference was the pastor and his wife long ago had determined in their hearts that regardless of what their kids did, they were going to love them the same. And so when a crisis came, they responded with unconditional love rather than anger. And I think as parents, when we have children of any age, but especially when we have prodigal children, that's a choice we have to make. To say, you know what, I'm never going to disown you. I will love you. I'm not going to rescue you. I'm not going to solve all your problems. And I'm not going to try to fix everything. And I'm not going to do everything you want. But I'm going to love you the same. And I'm never going to disown you.
2: Many parents know the pain of dealing with a prodigal child. And will perhaps say to us, Phil, that it's the worst emotional pain, heart pain that they've ever experienced. And oftentimes, perhaps, would love to just sort of stuff it, avoid it, detour around it. And yet, in the book, you talk about the importance of allowing pain of wrong choices. Explain that to me.
1: Well, you know, sometimes what I discovered when I talked to people who are prodigals, And especially prodigals who are making bad choices. You know, there's drug addiction, uh, you know, maybe there's alcohol problems or gambling addictions. They're making bad choices. And as a result, every time they get in trouble, they will usually call their parents and, you know, basically say, come rescue. Come get me out of jail, get me a lawyer. And parents oftentimes will do that thinking they're doing what is best for their child. But we must allow our children to face the consequences of their choices. Um, you know, it even goes back to sometimes when children are young, if they get in trouble at school, you know, our tendency is to criticize the teacher. Well, if you are to punish the other kids. Well, in actuality, we're teaching that child your choices don't have consequences. And the same is true when they're adult children is that we must allow them to face the consequences again the story of the prodigal son uh, in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus told that story the father allowed his son to leave he allowed his son to go hungry he allowed his son to be in the pig pen to the point he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating now that's a child at the very point of starvation Uh, you can't get any worse and yet the father did not rescue him from the pig pit. He never stopped loving him. He never stopped uh, wanting a relationship with his son, but he had to let his son see, you made the choice, you have to face the consequences. Because the father had enough wisdom to know that until the son came to himself, he would never really get his priorities right. And often we rush in as parents to remove the consequences from the lives of our prodigals and they're the very things that God is using to break them and to bring them to a point of repentance. So that's what I mean when I say one of the principles is allowing your child to face the consequences of their decisions.
2: This uh, friend of mine that I spoke of earlier in our conversation tonight uh, suffered a lot from that and, and I described it as constantly putting a pillow on Under this kid's backside every time he fell. Right. I see, you know, the point is going to come when you're constantly protecting, 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 and he never feels the blunt force trauma, so to speak, of his actions so that every time he gets into a car accident because he was out drinking and needs the fender repaired, you write the check every time he needs to be bailed out, every time he needs an excuse, every time he needs to borrow money, and you're constantly there for him. He is never, ever, ever going to learn that there are consequences to bad or negative actions.
1: Very true. And one of the things that's important to remember, especially if a prodigal is in destructive behavior, if we keep rescuing them, the the behavior gets worse, and ultimately it reaches a point where we cannot rescue them. I mentioned early in our conversation about one of the prodigals that I had a lengthy conversation uh, with was a young man who will be in prison the rest of his life. He acknowledged his parents always rescued him until finally one night he actually took another man's life. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when he did, he expected his parents to get the best lawyers and to get him out of prison, and his parents weren't able to do that. And so ultimately he faced the consequences of his choices, but for him it was too late to really, I mean, he can get right with the Lord, but he's going to be in prison the rest of his life. And so I encourage parents right now who are listening to us, who are facing that very issue, you're going to be amazed when you say no. Your, your prodigal may get angry. They're going to tell you you don't love them. And boy, they're going to try to go the guilt route because they've learned guilt manipulates you if you haven't gotten the victory over the guilt. But when you finally say to them no, you may be surprised at how their prodigal suddenly starts maturing and as a result decides, wait a minute, I've got to change my life. Doesn't happen in every case, but in many cases, that is the beginning of a turnaround for a prodigal.
2: The other admonition that you share, Phil, within the six principles for getting your prodigal back is to watch our words. Boy, there's a tough one for every parent who loves to lecture. (laughs) Right,
1: right. And it's not just a lecture. Let me tell you what I discovered uh, when I talked to prodigals. One prodigal said to me, He said, I don't understand my mother. He said, she comes home from church on Sundays, and she tells me how bad the sermon was and how they just, the preacher is just so terrible. And she does not like the music at her church, and it's too loud, or she doesn't like the selection of songs. She doesn't like where they have put her Bible study class. He said, in fact, she spends all week talking about everybody at the church. And then she's in shock on Sunday when I don't want to go to church and listen to that horrible music and that terrible preacher <laughs> and when i heard him tell me that story i realized that sometimes our criticism of other believers our criticism of our church with the best intention in our heart and we think nothing about it is magnified by the devil a hundred times so that our prodigals see everybody in church as hypocrites and so they begin to detach themselves. And you know, I've even said to people, you know, the very person God may want to use to get your prodigal attention and getting back in a right relationship with the Lord may be the very Christian you dislike the most. It may be the one person that just loves you wrong all the time. But that may be the person that God wants to you and your criticism of that person may push your prodigal further away. So I think we have to be very guarded about what we say about other believers and even non-believers for that matter. But we have to be very careful with our words, not just to our prodigals, but in front of our prodigals.
2: They listen closer than we realize. Finally, you talk about praying the hard Mm. prayers. Elaborate. Mm.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that people ask me is, what do you see often gets the attention of a prodigal. And I discovered there were two things. There are several things that I mentioned in my book, but there's two things that I notice more than others. One is the influence of a friend, someone who comes into their life who has a heart for God. Might be a co-worker, might be a neighbor across the road, uh, might be someone who serves on a committee at the school, uh, but someone comes into their life where they have a common interest or common passion And through their friendship, that person who has a heart for God begins to influence them in a positive way. So the first thing you pray is, Lord, bring into the life of my prodigal people who have a heart for you. And then there's a second prayer. It's the hardest prayer you will ever pray as a parent or a grandparent. And the prayer is, Lord, whatever it takes. And we sometimes think about God breaking our prodigal, that our prodigal is going to have to go through some hard times. But what if God wants to use our sickness, or even our death as a parent or grandparent, to get our prodigal's attention? Because the one thing, Craig, I discovered, is almost in every situation where I talk to a prodigal whose parents who were godly folks, or grandparents who loved the Lord, when they were suffering or when they died, that is one moment in a prodigal's life when he will pause And he will evaluate his life. And that's a moment that sometimes God uses to bring brokenness and conviction. Now, I'm not saying God is always going to do that. But I think as parents, if we're willing to say, Lord, whatever it takes, even if you need to take me to heaven, I am willing to do it to see my prodigal come back to you. And when you're willing to pray that prayer, All this other stuff is easy because I think that's when we're in a position of strength where we have taken our prodigal and ourselves and to the Lord and said, Lord, here they are. You do whatever it takes to bring brokenness and repentance and we give it to you. And when we can pray that prayer and sincerely mean it, you would be amazed how you become stronger, not weaker and how the Lord begins to work to bring your prodigal back to him.
2: And at the end of the day, of course, we know that God has a heart for the prodigal. And you hear the heart of Phil Waldrop for the prodigal as well. Some important steps, some key insights in helping to answer the question... What did I do wrong? What do I do now? Reaching your prodigal, again, newly published by Worthy Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, usual shots of suspects like Amazon.com and through Phil's website, Phil W A L D R E P.org. And our thanks to Phil Waldrup for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: It's fairly common folks go out because it's their old alma mater or they're aware of, uh, Maybe a school that's gotten some good rankings somewhere somehow that they think uh, they're doing the right thing or because it has a tuition that begins at, you know, $21,000 per week that, that must be the right place to send their kids because, you know, the more we spend for a car, we typically get a better quality car, better quality house. Is that necessarily true, though, when it comes to a better quality education? Well, my guest in this segment of the program might beg to differ with that. In fact, we're going to talk about how to choose the right college There is a website, by the way, that you need to know, jot down, and uh, bookmark called collegeguide.org. It gives you insights on to some of the best and worst colleges of the U.S., the reasons why, and most importantly, it's not always what you think they ought to be. Now, if you're someone that typically picks up a copy of U.S. News and World Report, a magazine to which I subscribe for many years, and you think that that's the single place to get information, let me dispel that myth right now. John Zimrick joins us on the program. and John, talk to us a bit about the latest report now, a look at choosing the right college that gives some insights that parents, in fact, uh, might run kind of contrary to what they've otherwise here before believed about certain schools.
3: Yes, our emphasis is on showing up what's really going on at these colleges. We, we, we're an organization, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, that's existed since 1953. It was founded by William S. Buckley um, immediately after he wrote his famous book, God and Man at Yale, where uh, he was disturbed by just how anti-American and anti-God he found his experience at Yale University, which he would have expected to be a kind of bastion of, of Christianity and patriotism, given that it was one of the founding colleges of the United States. But he was quite surprised at what he found. So the Intercollegiate Studies Institute was founded as a kind of support group for students of religious faith, of patriotic values, uh, committed to market economy, and to traditional values. And it connects students and faculty across the country as committed to those things. We use our co- network of contacts associated with all these schools to tell us what's really going on on the campuses, and we use that to produce our biannual 1,000 page report on the leading 130 colleges in the country
2: some of the information that you're presenting really as we say kind of runs contrary to to popular belief Uh, a lot of the 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 popular rankings I, i would suspect are based on the name the prestige, the amount of money that they're charging but that's not always indicative of the quality of instruction is it
3: No, not at all. In fact, uh, sometimes it's almost the the inverse of that. You'll find that at the most prestigious and expensive schools, they are paying the professors primarily to do research and to come up with elaborate and sometimes esoteric academic studies that only two or three hundred people in the whole world will ever read. Now, that's fine in the natural sciences or in engineering, but in literature, really, do we need the 400th book in the last two years on Shakespeare? Or even worse, do we need books on really esoteric subjects, such as, like, lesbian influence on graphic novels? Um, well, you'll Streaming now yeah. A- 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 on A- research. A- while teaching is relegated to graduate teaching assistants, you know, people working on their PhDs.
2: All right. That said, one of the the things that you outline inside of this uh, survey, and again, a lot of the information available on the web at collegeguide.org, is this idea that some of the best-known so-called prestigious schools turn out to be train wrecks. What do you mean by that?
3: By train wreck, we mean a place that has a lot of potential, that has... Many millions of dollars in resources. That is squandering them on political activism, or on esoteric subjects, or on uh, building elaborate, comfortable student lounges so that the students can can treat the school like like a, a resort. Um, and and reading at dot com. Uh, which you know might sound like a nice method of school, but in fact is entirely secular and one of the most anti Christian, and, and and I have to say. Um, licentious colleges I've ever heard of. Not only are the dormitories co-ed or the, and the bathrooms co-ed, even the dorm rooms are co Every dorm room can potentially be co-ed, so couples can hook up on the college's dime in the college's dormitory. And the school, uh, the school is a gay lesbian student center that has a lending library of, of really sadistic pornography. It, it's just staggering what goes on at a school named for a man like John Wesley, and that parents are paying $40,000 a year so that their kids can be exposed to it.
2: Why does a lot of this information tend to elude some of the more traditional resources, and I don't want to pick on U.S. News <laughs> and World Report, but why does some of this backstory about, uh, you know, not just the... the the rankings in terms of the caliber of education, but the the intellectual atmosphere, the quality of instruction, student life, what goes on behind the scenes, why does so much of this tend to sort of elude some of the perhaps better known ranking systems?
3: Well, because they don't have an overt philosophy of education. They're just looking at the numbers. They're trying to be value neutral. And in that way, they're accepting the kind of relativistic philosophy that underlies so much of education. We have an overt educational philosophy. It is the traditional liberal arts mission that helped create the American college system that uh, John Henry Newman talked about in the idea of a university um, that the Jesuits used in forming their colleges, that the Protestant reformers used in forming Yale and Harvard and Princeton. We're willing to say, yes, we choose one set of values over another. This set of values seems to us more in consonance with the Western tradition. So we are going to choose schools that do a better job of reflecting that tradition
2: all right with all that said you're ranking everything from the intellectual atmosphere quality of the instruction uh, do, you, do you take any consideration the political bent of the school as well
3: we do we, we we look for schools where there is not a uniform monolithic typically liberal or feminist or multicultural atmosphere that would make conservative or christian students feel unwelcome Um, It's a really widespread problem that colleges are just not wholesome places where you can feel free to express your ideas and and the values you live by. And and in universities, are supposed to be a place of free exchange, but they've increasingly become places of indoctrination. So we highlight schools where they aren't necessarily conservative or Christian, but they are open. They they have academic freedom. Students can feel free to express their views without fear of being graded down, or expelled, or prosecuted by the school for 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 saying what they believe. And that's a, that's not as universal as you would hope. That kind of academic freedom. Academic freedom tends to cut just one way at most colleges. It cuts to the left.
2: There's also another uh, kind of a monster lurking in the background here in the room that a lot of folks tend to kind of ignore. And that is the notion that uh, quite often we we fail to count the real cost. We look at sort of, okay, this is what the tuition is going to be. You also take a look at uh, the average expense that students will have in terms of student loans and the ongoing indebtedness, too, don't you?
3: I think that yes, the most important number to look at, because, you know, a lot of schools have high tuition and a lot of financial aid and they cancel out. The thing to look at is the average student loan debt of a recent graduate. That tells you, that's where the rubber hits the road. The average American student graduates with a debt of $25,000. That's more than most of them will earn upon graduation. That's such a weight to be carrying. That's such a, that's the kind of thing that slows down people's attempts to form families or to get married, it certainly prevents them from owning homes and, and starting a nest egg. So that's the kind of challenge we'd rather see people not have to face as recent college graduates.
2: Folks want to get more information. Uh, we've mentioned about the website, collegeguide.org.
3: Right. And the book we published, Choosing the Right College, which is available from Amazon.com and at major bookstores.
2: Excellent. Again, choosing the right college, an invaluable resource. And again, through Amazon.com, the usual suspects as well. Details, too, on the web at collegeguide.org. And our thanks to John Zamrit for being with us on this edition of Lifeline.